John chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. And we're going to be doing verses 1 through 12. And I want to read it first, and then we'll go back and kind of break it down. So out of the New American Standard, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So this is a pretty famous story in the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, maybe not, but most of you have have read this story, and some of you got real excited because it goes, oh man, they're just going to talk about wine this whole night here. So, um, but, but in actuality, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about wine tonight, but we're not going to give a sermon on whether or not it was okay for them to party with wine at the wedding, okay? That's not what this is going to be about. We're going to just deal with the facts that they drank wine at weddings, in, in Jewish weddings, okay? That's the facts. And to get a little background uh, on this, Jesus had been baptized a little bit earlier than this, and he'd gone out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the enemy and come back and then began to enter into the region of the Galilee. And this miracle that we're going to study tonight is the first. Oops. Okay. Well, see, I'm not used to those boot heels. A uh, little wire in there. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So as we read this, we go, well, the third day, what's that got to do? Is there any significance to that? And I have to tell you, I, I researched this for probably an hour, just trying to find out what's the significance of the third day. Um, there's two thoughts on this, and neither one of them are really that significant. So I, I don't know if I even need to explain them, but really, if you follow the narrative in John, it says the next day, the next day, the next day, and uh, as, as you go back into chapter 1. And so probably it was the third day after he had called uh, a couple of his disciples, three days after that. Some people say it was the third day of the wedding because remember in Jewish weddings, how long did they last, do you know? They lasted a whole week. There's a whole week of festivities. And so uh, it could have been the third day, but if you just follow the narrative, it seems more likely it was three days after Jesus had called uh, some of his disciples. And that, that may have some significance, it may not. But it was the third day after that. And we see here that Mary was already at the wedding. And as we follow along a little further, as, as we read here, it's very possible she might have been the wedding coordinator. 
Now, I don't see Lurie here tonight, but Lurie has been our wedding coordinator here, and, you know, they have a lot of things that they have to do and keep track of, and we see in here that Mary seems to be in charge of some stuff here. So the, the family that was having this wedding, uh, probably well known to Mary and, and maybe even to the whole family. And in verse 2 it says, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So obviously the bride and groom either knew Jesus personally or knew Mary, and because Jesus was the son of Mary, he was invited. Now, he had just you know, gotten his disciples, so it may have brought a few unexpected guests, which we uh, will see may have been part of the problem here. But in some fashion, they were known by the family of the wedding. In verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So it seems that either more guests came than were expected, which is a possibility, or just that the family uh, just didn't have the means to be able to provide enough wine for the entire week of the wedding uh, festival. And again, because it lasted a week, I was thinking about that. It was probably a lot of wine that they had to have for an entire week. Most likely, it, it was a family that didn't have a lot because in, in the village of Cana, this was not a, you know, a place where there were a lot of wealthy people living. So in verse 4, Jesus says to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us, meaning myself and the disciples? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we first read that, our, our, our reaction in, in our Western language and culture would be, God, that seems kind of rude, talking to his mama that way. Woman! Uh, do any of you guys say that to your wife? I advise you not to. Uh, but actually, the word in Greek here is a very tender-hearted word that you would speak uh, to, to an older woman. Um, and Jesus is not disrespecting his mother whatsoever, but he is making sure that she realizes, which she does, that he is no longer under her authority whatsoever. He would honor his mother, of course, and if his father was still alive, he would honor his father, but he was not under their authority, even just as a Jewish man, but certainly not as the Messiah. And remember that Mary was probably the first one. I, I think she was probably the first one. I can't say that dogmatically. But probably the first one who knew that her son was the Messiah. Jesus' response to her is tender-hearted and yet saying to her, Look, my hour has not yet come. And it might be that Mary thought his hour had come. She might have been trying to kind of push the issue uh, a little bit here and thinking, okay, I'm going to turn this over to my son and something good's going to really happen here. But uh, we don't know that for sure. And Jesus' response, this is not my time yet, that's recorded five different times uh, in the book of John where he would say, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about? Well, the hour that he was to be revealed as the Messiah. Now, there were going to be you know, points here and there where people were going to look and go, well... You know, he has to be from God to do that. But there was a day set aside that he would be revealed as the Messiah. Do you know what day that was? Palm branches? Yes. That was the day that the Lord had made. So in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now here we see Mary's faith in Jesus. And again, remember that uh, 
earlier in the book of Matthew, it's recorded that Mary pondered all these things that she was intaking in her heart, and she watched him grow. And that's why I say I believe she was the first one to truly understand that he was the Messiah. And even remember when, when the angel came to her and said, you're going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, ladies, how many of you, if you got a vision of some sort that told you something of that nature, would say this, Luke 1.38, And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord, meaning herself. I am your bondslave, Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That might be kind of tough, wouldn't it? But Mary was a woman of great faith in God. And because of her faith in him, she just decides, I'm going to turn this whole situation over to Jesus, and I know that whatever he does is going to be the right thing. And in verse 6, it says, Now there are six stone water pots set there for each, or for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons. I want you to keep that in mind. Uh, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they weren't completely full. How much full they were, I don't know, but they had 20 or 30 gallons each. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now, it's interesting to note here that oftentimes when Jesus is going to perform a miracle, he attaches a command to it. I don't know as you've read through the the uh, Gospels, whether you've ever noticed that. But oftentimes, Jesus has a command to go with the miracle that he's going to perform. In John chapter 9, you remember when Jesus put clay on the blind man? And he said, now go and wash it off in the pool of Siloam. He didn't have to do that. But he gave a command, a command that would force that man to participate. Uh, in Matthew 12, 13, when he restored the man's withered hand, he says, stretch forth your hand. Now, I wonder if the guy didn't stretch forth his hand, would Jesus have healed him? I'm not sure. But Jesus gives commands when he does miracles oftentimes. Remember with Lazarus in, in, Lazarus in uh, John eleven forty three, 43, you know, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, that one always gets me because I'm wondering, you think Lazarus laid there for a couple of seconds going, what's going on here? Who's calling me? You know, I, I mean, it's amazing. But there was a command attached to it. Lazarus had to get up and walk out. And these servants were given a command and they were obedient. And, and, and it looks like they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do with no questions asked. Now think about that for a second. They're probably going over these pots going, why are we filling these with water? The, you know, the, the, the necessity here is wine. He didn't tell them what he was going to do. But without question... They went, they filled them up, and they took them to the head waiter. Now, that's another thing. And, and my Italian grandfather uh, was a head waiter. He, he was a waiter, then a head waiter, then a maitre d', and, and then a banquet manager. Okay, his whole life was spent in that, that industry. And, you know, he was a pretty tough guy. Now, you know, I was just thinking about this. If, if he was the head waiter... And he knew we needed more wine, and these guys brought up these big old pots full of water that people were using to dip their hands in. He wouldn't have been a happy camper. And they would have known that. I wonder, were they thinking, well, what are we going to do when we get there? But apparently, they didn't worry about it. They just obeyed what Jesus told them to do. And then in verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, 
did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the indication here is that the wine that Jesus made was much better than the wine that had already been served. Now again, a poor family, maybe they couldn't afford the best wine. I don't know. The fact is, I can't stand wine. I never drink it. I wouldn't have a clue of what makes it better or what makes it doesn't better. I mean, what is it? Okay, more alcohol? I don't think that was it. But maybe some of you guys that know a little bit about it could say, well, this is what would make a wine better or this or that. And uh, if that's you, I need to um, pray with you after the service. Um, now, look, if Jesus had turned the water into Diet Coke, then I could have told you this is what makes Diet Coke way better than Diet Pepsi, okay? And I would have some expertise there, but I have no idea what really took place here but the wine was evidently better than that which had been previously served. And the normal practice, of course, was to serve the better wine first. Because people wouldn't notice then, when they got the other wine, that it wasn't quite as good. Now, I think a lot of people think, well, the idea there is because they're so drunk they can't tell. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I don't. I think it more has to do, look, whenever you've had something, even a good food or whatever, I don't know, my mind, because again, I don't drink wine, what came to my mind was, you know, those spicy gumdrops. You know what I'm talking about? And then they have the little sugar on the outside. Yeah, yeah. So that's where my mind goes. So you, you, you eat a couple of those spicy gumdrops, and at first it's like, whoa, that just hits your mouth, right? And you taste all that flavor. But after a while, when you've eaten, like in my case, half the bag, and then you continue, you're like, they all kind of taste the same. One's maybe cinnamon and the other's something else, but they just kind of blend in. I, I think that's more uh, what was going on here, that, that you just brought out the, the poor quality later because by then people didn't really, their taste buds weren't working exactly the same way. And then verse 11, it says, this beginning of his sign. So remember, this was the first of 35 recorded miracles in the Gospels. The first of 35 that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we note here that basically only Jesus' disciples, Mary, and the servants actually knew a miracle had taken place. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't think anybody else knew that. The head waiter didn't know, so he probably, I'm sure he wasn't telling everybody, hey, we only had water, but this guy turned it into wine. We don't see anywhere where that's the case. I think there's a reason for that, because Jesus said, what? My hour is not yet come. And yet he allowed his power to be demonstrated to his mother and to his disciples and those few servants that were there. And I think it was important for the disciples at this point, it was early in their time with him, for them to see the power that Jesus had. And it's interesting to read right there that it says after that, it says his disciples believed in him. And that's interesting because we know that many times later on, we wonder, did they really believe in him? We know oftentimes they doubted him. And yet it says that early that they believed in him. 
And I would say it took a much longer time for their faith to become an unshakable faith in Jesus to the point where they were even willing to die for the gospel. And we're going to talk more about that in a bit. So we look at these verses and we say, okay, all right, Jesus did a miracle, let's move on. But no, we're going to look at this and go, well, what does this have to teach us here? And, and guess what? There's a ton of things that the Bible wants to teach us in this first miracle that Jesus did. I think the first point of application that I saw was Jesus was willing to mix with poor people, people that were not well-to-do. We, we often say Jesus, you know, was a friend of sinners, and I've heard pastors say, oh, Jesus, you know, spent all this time hanging out with, you know, drunkards and sinners of all kinds of ways. That's not really true. If you look at the Gospels, there were times where he did, but most of his time was spent with who? Who was it spent with? It was his disciples. And they were traveling all around. He didn't spend all his time hanging around. But the point was that he was willing, you know, he was willing to go to a wedding, participate in the wedding. And, and I have to say, this is a lesson for me because um, I struggle sometimes going to certain events because I know the behaviors that may take place there. And, and I'm like, man. And weddings is one of them. I'll just be honest with you. Wedding and I love weddings. I'm not all that fond of receptions, just being honest here. And part of the reason I'm not fond of receptions is because oftentimes they serve wine or more than wine and people drink in excess, and I just don't like to be around that. But, you know, Jesus is teaching me a lesson here because he was there, and he was there for a purpose. And I think if we keep in our mind, I, I was reminded of, of uh, my 20th reunion, the only one I've gone to. Uh, was my 20th, and I didn't want to go for that same reason. I knew everybody would be partying, and, you know, 20 years later, guys act like they're still in high school, and that always bothered me. But I went anyway, and guess what? My uncle and I, my uncle was my, my head football coach and all my teammates, led one of my ex-teammates to the Lord in the bathroom at a high school reunion. Yeah, wow, is right. And, and so, you know, we have to be like Jesus, willing to mix with anyone. Proverbs 28, 21 says this. To show partiality, meaning, you know, y'all hang out with certain people over others. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. Galatians 2, 6 says, But from those who are of high reputation, this is Paul speaking, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who have a reputation contributed nothing to me, and that's, that's often the case. All the high and mighty, they don't contribute anything to you, but uh, the poor people do. Uh, Acts 10.34, it says, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And James, uh, we don't have to go to James just for time's sake. But James in chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 9, gives a real heavy lesson on not showing partiality to people. And in verse 9 he says, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Well, that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? So Jesus didn't show partiality. Jesus, yeah, he hung out with the poor people and the sinners, but he hung out with... Uh, with kings at times, even if it wasn't a great outcome after that. 
But he was willing to meet with anybody when he saw a need. And we need to be like that. We need to not be a respecter of persons, but be willing to go where God calls us to go and use us where God desires to use us. So not showing partiality. The second point of application, I think, is we need to be like Mary and say, when we're in need, where should we go? We should go to Mary's son, Jesus. As we saw, Jesus will do what's necessary to get the proper result. And I want you to note there, as you look back, that Mary didn't tell Jesus how to solve the problem. He just said, hey, we're out of wine. Now, I don't think that we normally respond that way. When we're in need, it's usually, we're going to tell Jesus exactly how to do what we need and fix what we need, right? Yeah, I'm glad somebody's chuckling because I didn't want it to just be me. But it's, you know, we're usually like, here, Jesus, let me tell you what needs to happen here. You know, Lord, I need money this week to pay my bills, so send it to me in the mail. You know, he's giving him directions on how to do it. Or here's, here's one, and, and uh, I'll probably get in trouble for this one because I don't mean to disparage anybody, but I know there are people who have done this. Lord, I am so lonely. So I'm going to the singles ministry tonight, and Lord, I just want you to put my future spouse right there in that meeting. You know, we're going to tell Jesus how to do it. Mary doesn't do that. She just tells Jesus there is a need. And, and why? Because she knows that he will do the right thing. And we need to know that too. We need to not tell Jesus how to do what we think we need because guess what? The truth may be we don't need what we think we need. And the truth is Jesus knows exactly what we need. Now that doesn't mean we don't pour our heart out to him. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But, but maybe as you're thinking about how your prayer life is and when you're in a place of need, maybe you should think about, you know, Jesus, I don't want to tell you how to do this. I just want to pour my heart out to you and how I feel about the situation. Lord, I just want to turn it over to you. And Lord, you do whatever I need, whatever is going to work for me, because you know the future, I don't. You know what's best for me, I don't. And maybe our need is not to get out of the situation that we're in. Maybe it's to persevere through a situation we're in. Maybe our need is to spend more time with Jesus rather than going to all the singles ministries and looking for a spouse. Maybe our need is to work a little harder and be a little wiser with our money and maybe paying a little penalty for not doing that well will teach us a lesson and maybe we need that more than we do the money that you want Jesus to send you in the mail. So I think in any way that you look at it, as long as you can say, okay, Jesus, here's what I think I need, but I'm just going to give it to you. I want, I want to be like Mary. Here's the problem, Jesus. You already knew the problem, but you told me to come to you. So here it is. So you fix it. You do what you need to do. And I promise you, Jesus will do what's necessary. He'll do what you need. We need to have that same level of trust that, that Mary did. The third point of application I see here is that like the servants here, we need to be obedient to Jesus' commands. And here's the cool thing. Think about this. When we're obedient to the command of Jesus, we will get to participate in other people's blessings. I want you to think about those servants. 
They, they may have not even had a relationship with Jesus, but they did what they were told, and then they got to see this miracle take place, and all these other people didn't get to see that. I mean, can you imagine their conversation? I don't know when the water turned to wine. I, again, that was another one. I spent hours trying to see if anybody had any insight. Nobody knows. It, it could have been uh, before they even picked the pots up and took them over. And remember, these were heavy pots. It could have been that when they took them there and set them down, they were still water. And then they would have been going, uh-oh. But then they saw the head waiter take it out, and there was this wine, and then he began to brag on how good the wine was. But they were obedient to the command, and they got to participate in this blessing. Remember, th this wedding was probably somewhere in the middle of the week, maybe the beginning, maybe towards the end, but they still needed wine. Now all of a sudden, the party was back on, and everybody was happy. Everybody was enjoying the time together. We look at them and say, they may not even have a relationship with Jesus. How much more should we be willing to obey the commands of Jesus? And I think oftentimes we think of it as an obligation. You know, oh yeah, I know the Bible said, Jesus said to do this. Um, man, I, I guess I got to do it. But we should be looking at it as an opportunity of God partnering with us. When we're obeying his commands to do something, he's giving us an opportunity to partner with him in a work that he's doing. And that's why the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his people. You have a spiritual gift. I know some of you think you don't, but you all do. And you probably all have more than one. And, and I think this is interesting because, you know, the, the word for gifts there, is, it's speaking of our spiritual gifts, is the word charisma. And that comes from the Greek word charis. And that word charis, do you know what it means? It means grace. So when we use the gifts that God has given us to serve others, to be used in doing God's commands, we are actually extending God's grace to other people. And the cool thing is that whenever God does that, you know that he actually blesses us more than the people that we're supposed to be blessing. Have you ever noticed that? When I think about that, I think of my, my trips to Mexico. I may have said this before, but I have a real love-hate re relationship with Mexico. <laughs> Let me explain to you what I mean. I love the people there. I love what goes on when we go down there. I, I, I just, it, it's amazing. But I hate driving down there. I hate waiting at the border to cross the border. I'm not real thrilled of sometimes sleeping on the floor in an air mattress. I remember the first time we went, not to the, the work we're doing now, but the work in Algodones there, and I literally did not sleep a wink for, for two straight nights there. I didn't like that. I didn't like taking a two-minute cold shower. You know, I have a love-hate relationship with Mexico. But, but every time I've gone to watch the work that God does, and I mean every time you go, it's, it's something different. God's going to do something. And it is such an amazing blessing to be able to participate with God in the work that he does there. And so rather than thinking of it, and, and, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I go through that. You know, when there's an opportunity to do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sometimes go, oh man, you know, and, and I may not want to do it. And sometimes I'm not supposed to do it. Sometimes God may not be calling me to do it. But when I know God's calling me to do it, I don't want to fight and I don't want to look at it as an obligation. 
I want to look at it as this is an opportunity for God to use me to bless other people. And in so doing, I always get blessed. That's just how it works in God's economy. So we have some really good points of application. But I, I want to take us back to, really, what is the true significance of this particular miracle? And, and I think it's important to note this as to why this is the very first miracle. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. I know I have many times. And I don't think I really ever understood until I got prepared to do this study. Why water into wine for the first miracle? Why wasn't it a healing? Did you ever think about that? Why wasn't it this way? Why is it Jesus just let them continue to party? Well, I think you'll see in a few minutes here. If you would turn back to the first chapter of John, verse 9. So just turn back a page or two here. John, chapter 1, verse 9. Because this sets up what's going to happen here. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the, the, the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I'm not going to get sidetracked on this, but take that, you Calvinists. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then they're going to read that one and say, take that, you Arminius. I'm not an Arminian, but that's what they would say. We see two things going on here. The will of God and the fact that man has to receive what he's offered. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of, and note this, underline it, full of grace and truth. In verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That's critical because we know that uh, John was born before Jesus. For of the fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, and here's the key verse, underline it, mark it, John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, you're probably going, wait, wait, I don't, I don't get the connection. Well, you need to think with me here for a minute. Think back when Moses turned the water red in Egypt, what did he turn it into? Blood. He turned it into blood. And that blood was a sign of what to the Egyptians? It was judgment. It was God's wrath. So in this case, turning the water into blood was a sign of judgment upon the Egyptians. But remember shortly after that, that God has the Israelites... Take the blood of an unblemished animal, 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 <laughs> animal, paint it on the doorposts, and that blood, rather than representing judgment and wrath of God, represents what? The grace and mercy of God. 
because those who had it painted on their doorpost would not die that night. This is a picture, of, uh, of course, of the future sacrifice, the unblemished animal, the unblemished lamb, Jesus, the song that Shane sang tonight, the lion and the lamb, Jesus himself would make to pay the price for our disobedience. The Egyptians were paying the price for their disobedience by the wrath of God represented in water being turned into blood. And when you think about it now, this wedding, Jesus takes the water. And what was that water used for? It was used for a ceremonial cleansing. You see, the Jews had to constantly go to the water to be cleansed. And ultimately, that water could not cleanse them completely. It could not do what later on Jesus would do for them. It was a symbol of their obedience to God, but it was only ceremonial. It could not take away the people's sin, and you had to do it over and over and over again. But what happens? Jesus turns that temporary cleansing water into wine, and that wine represents not the wrath of God, it represents blood, but that blood which saves. It represents the grace of God. And remember on the night before Jesus died, he held up that cup and he told his disciples that this wine represented his blood poured out for the remission of sin. Not blood which represented wrath, but blood which represented the grace and mercy of God. As J. Vernon McGee might say, Oh, my friends, what a picture we have here. And that is true. What a picture that's presented here at the wedding at Cana. You see, as Paul said in Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the law could not do, what that ceremonial washing could not do, God could do through his own blood. So rather than that cleansing water, which could never atone for our sin, we now have a once for all sacrifice we don't have to go through it over and over again it was done once and for all and it says in hebrews 7 5 that his blood is able to save us to the uttermost to the uttermost and you know when you think about it we're kind of like the water pots you know the water pots were made of clay they you know they were fairly solid but yet if if they dropped one of those 20 or 30 gallon water pots what's going to happen it's going to break and everything's going to pour out we're like that and they only had the one purpose and that purpose was to provide water for a ceremonial temporary cleansing but it really couldn't produce anything of spiritual value and that's us without the lord we cannot produce anything of spiritual value romans 7 18 says for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's Paul speaking before he's a Christian. And some people say, some say even after, because we still have the flesh nature. In our own flesh, we can do nothing of spiritual value. And we might even be trying to obey the law. There are people who don't believe in God that just because we have, in our country, uh, our standard was the Ten Commandments. I say was, I'm not sure it is anymore. But people tried to live that way and obey the commandments. The problem is, eventually you're going to fail. You might be trying really hard to obey, but you have nothing good dwelling in your flesh. But then as we turn to Jesus, he brings that grace into our lives. He turns our water into wine. And he fills these, these pots here with the Holy Spirit who enables us to follow his commands, to fulfill his commands, and to bring grace and truth to other people. And when you think about it, isn't it amazing that he does that? And not only that he does it, but it's his joy and his desire to do that with us. And I think we need to know the greatest blessing that we have to give out. It's not money, it's not food, it's not even a healing, a temporary healing. The greatest blessing that we have to give out is the gospel of the grace of Christ. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Not far to your to your right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. Paul says this, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Oh, oh, how I wish more pastors would read this verse. What we preach is not ourselves. Look, when you get out there, in your neighborhood and at your work and at your school, please don't preach living truth. I'm not saying don't invite people to living truth because they're going to hear the word of God here. But don't be a preacher of, oh, my church is the greatest. We do this, we do that. Yeah, yeah. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Then bring Him to church. But don't preach the church. <coughs> preach yourself. Preach us as we're here to serve you because that's what we are. We're his servants. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And it says in, in verse 7, a lot of you know this verse, but we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We have this treasure in our clay water pots, our jars of clay, to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Just as the wine was given out at the wedding in Cana, we can give out that grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Now look, I need to share one last thing with you here. Remember I said the disciples, it says that early on there that they believed because of this miracle that they saw Jesus do. But we know that they messed up a lot. And there were times when they didn't believe. There were times when their faith was very lacking. So I need to tell you that 
it's okay for us to be like the disciples. You can believe and still at times have doubts. Does that mean you're not saved if you have doubts? No, that's not what it means. We're told in several places that salvation comes by believing in Jesus. If you turn to John 3, 16, 17, and 18, some of you have this memorized. You don't need to turn there. But John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, who does not believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now, that word for believe there, if you're in my firm foundation class, you already know this, you know what word it is. It's the Greek word pistuyo, and it means to place your trust in something or someone. So when we say believe, when we say, do I believe in Jesus, it's have I put my trust in Him, my trust in Him as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. And that's the same word that was used of the disciples in verse 11. They pistuyoed. I don't know if that's technically right in Greek, but, but that's what they did. They, they, they were trusting Jesus. They weren't perfect in their trusting. They had doubts. But there's a big difference between doubts and not believing. You see, not believing means you have rejected Jesus. It means you've rejected his finished work on the cross for you. And someone was just preaching on the radio uh, either yesterday morning or this morning. And and as it said here, if, if you haven't believed, you're already condemned. You see, we're already in a state of condemnation because we're sinful people. We must take that step of belief and trust. So the key is, look, if you have some doubts, that's okay. But you need to go find the answers to the questions that give you those doubts. Because those answers are available. A lot of people say, well, what about this in the Bible? What about the Bible? And then you give them the answer. There's there's answers for these things. But if you leave a doubt and you don't do anything with it, it continues to grow. And it may grow to that point where you are doomed to unbelief because you've never had those questions answered. So how would I know that? How would I know if my doubts have led me to unbelief? Well, if you continue on in John there, I think you'll find the answer. John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You see, those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ will find themselves practicing evil, and they will love darkness rather than light. That doesn't mean they're going to go find a dark corner to hide in all the time. But they don't want their deeds, and especially their thought life, exposed. And that's not just talking about the obvious things. We, you know, we sometimes when we see that go, oh yeah. No, look, there's a lot of people walking around this world, and you look at them and go, they're great people. They just seem to be awesome. You know, they do nice things for people, this, that, and the other. But you know, if you look in Galatians 5, you'll see things that maybe aren't the obvious things that are still practicing evil. Things like hatred 
discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. People that normally seem like good people, but they're practicing these things. And 2 Corinthians 12 speaks of slander and gossip and even just arrogance. And as we know that Jesus indicated to us, it's not whether we're just physically practicing something, it's if it's going on in our heart. Even if we're not doing the deed, we're guilty of practicing evil things. If that's what's going on in your life, yeah, you may be in that place of unbelief, not just doubt. And the truth is that without putting your faith completely in Jesus Christ, you will be practicing those evil things. But just remember this. If you're a true believer and you're going to struggle with things, none of us are going to be perfect. Jesus is very patient with you when you have a doubt. I think some of us are afraid to go to Jesus and express our, our issue. Jesus, why, why did you allow this to happen? Now, you may not get the kind of answer you think you should have here, but I think of a conversation I had with a person the other night who has gone through probably more trauma in his life than maybe anybody I know. And, and this is the second time we've had this conversation. And he goes, where was God when this happened? And I said, God was where he always is. I said, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, you want to understand why is there evil in this world? That's what's bothering you. And I explained to him that we live in a fallen world. And that evil will always be practiced as long as people do not have Christ in their life. Pray for that, that man, if you would. And here's a cool thing. I think it's amazing. As you continue in your faith, maybe you have some doubts, but if you continue in your faith, continue in relationship with Jesus, if you study his word, you pray, you have fellowship with other believers, you serve in the body, the interesting thing is he begins to erase your doubts. One by one by one by one. You're not going to get it all answered in one easy lesson. But as you continue in the faith, you continue in that process of sanctification, the work that Jesus is doing in your life, you'll find those doubts begin to be erased. And if you're here tonight and you're a person who's never truly believed in Jesus, I pray that tonight will be your night. And if you're one of those who have prayed and believe that you're a Christian but you're still struggling with doubts, I pray tonight that you'll say, okay, let me figure out what it is. That's causing me to doubt. Let me ask the right questions. Let me dig into the scriptures and continue in the faith and watch Jesus erase those doubts in your life. The last verse, John 12, 12, was this. After all this took place, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And I don't have much comment on here other than the fact it just struck me. You know, this miracle took place it represented, and again, the very first miracle of Christ represented his bringing truth and grace and mercy into the world. That's why that miracle was so important. The very first miracle he did spoke of our salvation. But all this takes place, and then you just read verse 12 and says, they went down to Capernaum, he, his mom, and brothers and disciples. And I think that's important for us to realize. You know, Jesus was a man. 
He was fully human. And, and he wanted to hang out with his friends, his disciples, spend some time with his mom. He says they stayed there a few days. And I think that's a wonderful thing and a wonderful way to end uh, this night, just realizing, you know, he was a person. He felt everything that you and I did. He, he wanted companionship. He wanted love from the people he hung out with, just like you and I do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this evening. Thank you for each one that's here. And Lord, I thank you for how you have recorded this miracle. How you have uh, done it in such a way that we can look at it and see so much application for us personally. But even more, Lord, how the very first miracle that you did, the very first action that you took place, uh, that took place at this wedding, demonstrated to us that you came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That no one could be saved in the way that they were trying to be saved through the law, but only through your grace and your mercy, and you presented that picture in this very miracle.